Father, we look forward to the day when we will stand in your presence and give glory and honor and praise to our King, our Master. We are, we'll see ourselves perfectly as we are, and we will see you in all of your glory. Oh, Father, we long for that day. You have promised it. Help us, Father, to live for it. Now, Father, we come to your word. We come not as critics of your word, but we come as those whose lives would be critiqued by your word. And so we say, Father, come and speak to us and change us, we pray. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our exposition of Hebrews 11. What, a, what an incredible passage of Scripture this has turned out to be for us. I didn't intend to take this long on it, but every phrase seems to be freighted with so much treasure, I can't bear to skip over it too quickly. Hebrews 11, we'll begin with verse 20. I wish we had time for context on this. We don't. Because of the Lord's table this morning, I would, I would just direct you to the website where you can download the previous messages and all of the manuscripts that are connected with that. So this morning, we'll pick up with verse 20, and we'll read through verse 26. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Back in the 1990s, you remember a movement began among Christian men called Promise Keepers. It was founded by Bill McCartney, who was uh, a football coach for the University of Colorado. And in no time after he started this, the ministry kind of exploded on the national scene, became a national phenomenon as huge crowds of men began meeting in football stadiums all over the country to worship the Lord and to be inspired to be faithful in keeping the promises that they had made to their wives and to their children. In 1994, in fact, I right after we came here in 1994, some brothers up in the church that I left behind in Kansas were uh, going to attend the, the event that happened here at Texas Stadium, and so I decided to join them. And I tell you, it was absolutely awe-inspiring to stand in the center of that football field and sing holy, holy, holy with 65,000 men. And I have no doubt that many have come to know Christ as a result of that ministry because the gospel was often preached there without compromise. In fact, I know at least one man, and I've heard of others, who indeed came to know the Lord through that ministry. Nevertheless, from the very beginning of that ministry, many of us have been openly critical of promise keepers for a number of reasons, which often involved who was speaking and what they were saying. You just never knew what, was going, what it was going to be. One man would get up, who is a trusted expositor of the word, and preach this glorious message of truth. And the next guy would get up, and he would just be making stuff up. And he just never knew what you were going to get. Most importantly, however, was the conviction that the ministry itself was based on a false premise. Namely, 
that faithful Christian living is all about promise-keeping. In fact, the entire focus of the ministry is centered on what are known as the seven promises of the promise-keeper. Now, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with the seven promises per se, but consider this. If it is true, and I believe it is from especially the book of Romans, if it is true that it is impossible for men to keep the Ten Commandments, what hope can we have that we're going to be able to keep the seven promises of the promise keeper? The Ten Commandments that were written by the very finger of God and the seven promises of the promise keepers that were written by a football coach. And frankly, the New Testament is, ex- is explicit about the fact that God is not calling us to be better law keepers. Rather, he is expressly calling us to live by faith in God's promises of grace. We might say it this way. God's call upon the Christian life is not a call to promise keeping but to promise-seeking. God is the maker of every promise worth trusting. So it is He Himself who is the promise-keeper. And that is our hope, beloved. Our hope is not that we will be able to keep the promises and present ourselves to God as good law-keepers, but rather that we will present ourselves to God as those who trusted in His promise that no matter where we fail along the way, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is God's promise to us, that He will save all whose hope is built upon Him and not our ability to keep the promises. God is the maker of every promise worth trusting in, so He Himself is the promise keeper. We, therefore, are to live as promise seekers. That is, we are to live as people whose lives are are out of sync with the world because we are ruled not by the promises of the world, which are tangible and temporary, but we are ruled by the promises of God which are mostly invisible and eternal. That's why in verse 1 of chapter 11, the definition of faith is this. It's the assurance or the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction or the proof of things not seen. Promise seekers are people who are devoted to discovering the promises of God. Listen, We are devoted to discovering in His Word the promises of God and adjusting our lives accordingly. We find out what God has promised, and we set a course for the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. And by God's grace, we never turn away. Promise seekers are people whose lives can only be explained by the reality that they are ruled by treasures and pleasures that cannot be seen and can be only minimally experienced in this life. We only get a taste. We only get a down payment, as the Apostle says. When he gives us the Spirit in this life, we get a taste of our heavenly treasure. We get a taste of all of the, the infinite and eternal pleasures of God. But they are only a taste. We must take it by faith that the taste of the riches and the glory of God behind that taste is a huge banquet of delight, a huge banquet of promises that will be fulfilled on that final day, not today. And so, we understand as we live through this life that it will be full of disappointments, 
Because the promises of God, most of them, the most significant of them, are not meant to be fulfilled in this life, but in the life to come. Now, this has clearly been the perspective of Hebrews 11 so far, and I think we will see it all the more clearly in our text for this morning. So let's go to the text and observe three characteristics of promise seekers. Three characteristics of promise seekers. Number one, promise seekers fix their course on a distant prize. Promise seekers fix their course on a distant prize. Look at verses 20 through 22, and there's so much in these verses, and I was tempted a few weeks ago to preach these three verses, but I think it will be sufficient for us, just since the author just kind of bullet-pointed them like a grocery list for us, it doesn't seem that he intended for us to spend a lot of time on this, but just to make the point, and so we will, beginning with verse 20, by faith Isaac Bless Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leading on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Yes, Abraham was the paragon of faith. The New Testament authors almost invariably point back to Abraham as the model for how the gospel works. How, how does God declare a person righteous? On what basis does God declare a person righteous? Is it by their law-keeping or is it by faith? Therefore, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness before circumcision was ever given as a right to his sons, to he himself, and 400 years before the law was ever established. And so Abraham believed unto righteousness. Nevertheless, he was the one who passed down that faith to his son, Isaac. And Isaac passed it down to his sons, Jacob and Esau. In the story found in Genesis 27, where you will remember Jacob tricked his father into giving him the blessing that belonged to his older brother. And we know that, and we know there was treachery. We know there was sin involved in all of those relationships. And frankly, we look at some of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, like Samson, and we think, how in the world did he get in here? And the answer to that question is, when the chips were down, when it came to a decisive moment, the decisive moment of his life, he chose to trust God rather than the promise of his feelings, rather than the promise of his emotions, rather than the promises of the world. The point here in these, in the lives or the end of the lives of each of these men is that before Isaac died, he pointed his sons to the promises. Now remember the context of the book of Hebrews, he's writing to a little church of Jewish believers who would face persecution. They'd experience a time of peace now. They'd been faithful in the previous persecution, but now they're, they're getting ready to face another wave of persecution, and some of them are tempted to turn back. And he's saying, let us remember, let us remember the patriarchs who were raised in the promised land, although they didn't own it, and because of the famine were driven into Egypt. And there, while they lived outside of the promise, as we do, our, our promise is heaven. Our promise is that someday we will see Jesus face to face, and all of our desires and all of the delights and all of the pleasures and treasures that our hearts long for will be fulfilled on that day, and just like that, these men lived there as slaves in Egypt. 
they didn't have the fulfillment of the promise. And so what did they do? They didn't give up hope. They didn't despair. They said, we can't see it, but we know it's coming. And so when they got ready to die, they brought their sons to them and said, remember the promise. Live for the promise. Then in verse 21, we see Jacob doing the same thing on behalf of the next generation. As he was dying, he blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped by faith. And then again, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus that would not occur for 400 years. And so convinced was he, and this Joseph, who had never seen the promised land, so convinced was he that that he would that that God's promise would be fulfilled and his people would be brought back to the promised land that he told his sons and his grandchildren his brothers when you leave take my bones cuz i am going to the promised land i believe that It's what I hope for, though I cannot see it. I don't experience it now. All I get is a little taste of it. But I believe it with all my heart. So when you go, now what does that involve? That involves generational faithfulness. They have to pass that message down. Why? Because none of them were going to live for 400 years. And so he told his brothers and their sons, when you go, before you die, tell your sons, Before they die, they need to tell their sons. And before they die, their sons. And before they die, their sons. I mean, can you imagine? How old is our country? This is Fourth of July weekend, right? We're a little over 200 years old. It was 400 years they waited and believed. You see, they were living not for the promises Even the promises that God gave to them for this life is not the focus of the author of Hebrews here. Those are precious to us, and we need to be ruled by those promises. But the really governing promises were the ones that we could not see the fulfillment of here. But we believe will come to us there. And that's the illustration here with these three men. And by the way, dads, just as an aside, you realize, do you not, that the person most responsible for seeing seeing to it that the next generation will live by faith is you. It's you. It's me. And God has not given that responsibility to your pastor, primarily, or to the student minister, or to the Iwana volunteers. It's not primarily their responsibility. If the next generation is going to grow up living by faith in God's promises of future grace, it will primarily be because of the faithfulness of this present generation of faithful fathers who are following Deuteronomy 6 and talking about these things when they wake up and when they go through the day and when they lie down and when they get up again. And it's not just fathers, it's grandfathers granddads don't check out just because your children are all grown you have a huge ministry to your grandkids not just to make sure that they get the pleasures of this life nothing wrong with that in moderation but to point them to God so that the grandchildren would say hey you know my dad believes His dad believes. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. What a ministry we have. What a ministry we have. The ministry of telling our children and our grandchildren, and if the Lord wills, our great-grandchildren, that God's promises are worth living and dying for. Promise-seekers fix their course on the distant prize. It's like the captain of a ship knows where he's going. He sets his course based on the map that has been given him. He keeps his eye on the North Star, 
And he guides that vessel no matter what toward the prize. Toward the prize. And so promise seekers fix their course on a distant prize. So many ministries, and and frankly, so many individual people, you know why they go astray? Because their course is set by whatever direction their nose is pointed. And so they're all over the place. They have no direction. They're, They're lost. That's why Paul says, be careful that you're not tossed about by every wind and every wave of doctrine. Oh, here's something spiritual. Let's go this way. Oh, here's a new program. Let's go this way. Oh, here's 40 days of this and 20 days of that. Let's go this way and that way. And we come back and say, it's all over. What's the next deal? What's the next program? Rather than saying, no, no. There is a lighthouse out there that I can't see, but I know where it is. And nothing will shake me from my course. That's the way promise seekers live. We are seeking the fulfillment of distant promises. Number two, promise seekers keep their bearings in stormy seas. Promise seekers keep their bearings in stormy seas. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. This is really about Moses' parents' faith because they saw that he was a beautiful child. and They were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, you have to remember the story of Exodus 1 and 2. The Pharaoh of the time was becoming fearful that the Israelites were multiplying so rapidly that they would soon take over Egypt. And so he sent out an edict that every male child born to an Israelite family should be tossed into the Nile as crocodile food. And this put Amram and Jacobed in a horrifying predicament. Jacobed had just given birth to a Beautiful little boy. The text says beautiful. In the Greek, it's a little different than that. It's extraordinary. They looked at this baby and they said, he's really different. This is an extraordinary child. Maybe God has his hand. Maybe this is the one who will lead us out. It had been nearly 400 years. Time was... Coming close, maybe he's the one. They knew God's promises. It had been passed down from Abraham in detail. But here they were, now they had a male child. She wasn't about to just toss him into the Nile. But what could be done? Here's an impossible situation. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they throw the baby in the river, they kill the baby and disobey God. But they save their lives. If they save the baby, the king will come and kill the baby and them as well. They lose their lives. What's to be done? What do you do when you find yourself between two immovable obstacles and they seem to be closing in on you? What do you do? Can we even begin to imagine the horror of this predicament? What could, be, what could you have done? If, if anyone ever had cause for fear, it was Amram and Jacobed, but the author of Hebrews makes it plain that they did not let, listen, they did not let fear rule them. Listen, whenever you see in the Bible, do not be afraid. It doesn't mean don't experience the emotion of fear. God gave us that emotion to protect us. The issue is, do not allow fear to rule you. So what should rule you? You should be ruled by the promises of God. And so, if anyone had cause for fear, it was certainly Aram and Amram and Jacobed, but the author of Hebrews makes it plain that they didn't let fear rule them when the baby was born. It was not the king's word that they feared. It was God's word that they feared. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, 
But this is the one to whom I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And so Moses' parents, as they considered the likely prospect of their own execution for disobedience to the king, chose rather to be ruled by the promises of an infinitely greater king. They chose to be like Esther, who said, listen, if I perish, I perish. They chose to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, the God we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve the gods, your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. What hope do they have? Nothing in this life. We trust, Jocko Bed had to be thinking. If our baby gets thrown in the Nile, God will send an angel to protect him. But if the king comes with his soldiers and kills all of us, it doesn't matter. Because our hope is not built on any earthly promises. Not any that are given to us explicitly, and not any that we can contrive in our own hearts. If we just compromise a little bit, then everything will be okay. False promise. False promise. They chose to stand firm against the king's edict. They considered the likely prospect of their own execution. And they chose to trust God. How could they do that? Where does such boldness come from? It's important for us because all of you and me need, on occasion, to exercise uncommon boldness in our communication with other people and in the decisions that we make. Sometimes we need to make major life changes. And it may even be that in your marriage or in your home, some really significant things need to change. Where are you going to come up with the chutzpah to do that? Where are you going to come up with the courage to do that? Where are you going to come up with the motivation to do those kinds of things that need to be done in your life so that God will be glorified in you and you will know the joy of His blessing? Where does that kind of boldness come from? I tell you, beloved, there are people in the world whose lives can only be explained by the reality that they are living for treasures that cannot be seen. And it is that focus that gives them courage. It is that focus God has promised. He cannot lie. My life is secure. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He who lived and believed in me will will not die. And whosoever lives now and believes in me will never die. You are immortal. This body may be taken away. How many times did Paul talk about that? They may kill me. It doesn't matter. They're just going to send me home. There are some people in this world who live the kinds of lives that cannot be explained other than they're living for treasure that nobody else can see. They're living for reward that nobody else can see. They're living with security that nobody else can see. They have an assurance of things hoped for. They have a conviction about things that are not seen. That's faith. That's what faith is about. Listen, beloved, again, it's not about... These are the doctrines that I accept in my mind. It's not a list of truths that we say, yes, I believe that one, I believe that one, I believe that one, I believe that one, and I believe that one. No. It is daily throwing my life in the nitty-gritty moments of decision when we say... Boy, if I make that choice, it looks like the right one, but it scares the fire out of me. 
If I do that, it's going to hurt. I mean, it's going to be like being thrown in the Nile. It's going to be like being thrown into the fire. What do I do then? And the Lord is just telling us, remember the saints who have gone before you. Remember what they did. Remember how they trusted in God's promises. It wasn't that they were good promise keepers. Listen, you look through this list and say, oh my goodness, these people were blowing it left and right. And you do too. And so do I. Maybe not to the degree that some of these folks had. Maybe more in some cases. There's always the currents Always the winds and the waves that are blowing us, trying to get us off course. But the promise seeker, as soon as he realizes that, he comes back. He makes the correction in his life. He comes back. He sets that course again. There's the fulfillment of the promise. I am headed to the fulfillment of the promise. I'm a promise seeker. And I will be ruled. I will be governed by God's promises. And so against the king's edict, Moses' parents let the baby live. And then God preserved his life. And the rest of the story is a miracle of sovereign grace. The basket covered with tar. They put him in the river strategically, right upstream from the daughter of Pharaoh, hoping that maybe she would have compassion. when She sees a baby floating down the river in a basket. How cute is that? And sure enough, she sees it and says, oh, look, a baby. What woman can resist a baby? A living, cooing, sweet-smelling, I trust, baby. (laughs) And to add providence on providence, Moses' older sister was following along, watching. And when the princess realized she had a baby on her hands and really wanted it but didn't want to take care of it, and thought, how am I going to get to take care of this baby? They see a Hebrew girl on the bank, and they say, hey, can you go find someone to nurse this baby and keep it healthy for me? And Moses' sister said, I think I can find someone. How about his mother? And we don't know if the princess knew who it was who ended up being Moses' nurse. But God gave that child back. And there was some kind of arrangement where he would be under the tutelage of his parents and under the care of his parents and had open access with them his whole childhood life and even into his adult years. And then at the same time he was being trained in all of the skills that could be learned in Egypt and was given all the privileges and power of Egypt We know that because Stephen tells us that in Acts 7. We don't have time to look at that. But here's what we learn. Promise seekers fix their course on a distant prize. They keep their bearings in stormy seas. And third, promise seekers are not deceived by counterfeit treasure. And so we continue the story of Moses, right? Verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, by faith in what? By faith in the promises of God. And where did he learn the promises? This is generational faithfulness. My sisters in the Lord, he learned it from his mama. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, it's interesting there in the Greek, it says, when he had become great, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather, listen to this, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt? Why would you do that, Moses? Most of us are, frankly, more often turned away from Faith in God's promises by pleasure rather than by fear. We are more often turned away 
from trusting in God's promises by the pursuit of pleasure than by fear. The reason we're not more faithful to God is not because our lives are threatened, but because our comforts are threatened. We like our friendships. We like being accepted by our families or an unbelieving spouse. We like feeling that we fit in. We're not oddballs or religious freaks. We like being respected at school or on the job or on the team. We like the money we make and It might be lost if we ever took a stand for Christ at work. I know men who've done that. I know men who've done that at Lockheed and feared that all was lost and God promoted them. It doesn't always work out that way. It's exactly where Moses found himself. He was the prince of Egypt. The adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh who had been educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and respect and honor. The phrase, when he had grown up, as I said, literally means when he became great. Moses literally had the world at his fingertips, at his beck and call. What do you want? I can provide it. You've got to know how he must have blessed his family every chance he could. Scholars have suggested then that at age 40, Moses faced a profound crisis of faith because on his 40th birthday, he would have to make a formal decision regarding whether he would become a full-fledged Egyptian with absolute loyalty to Egypt and no reservations or to turn his back on it all in favor of a life of bondage with God's people. Meet a man who is facing the same test that Abraham faced. The question was, Moses, what do you love most? The pleasures of Egypt or the promises of God? Is your heart captivated most by earthly comforts and pleasures or by heavenly treasure and the promise of reward for eternity? Will you be ruled by the promises of the world or will you be ruled by the promises of God? Abraham had to make that choice. He said, God, I don't understand. You're going to kill my son? But he is the promise. Nevertheless, I will trust you. The answer to this, verse 24. By faith, He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, was that a wise decision or a foolish one? Is that a decision that makes sense to you intuitively? Or does it leave you scratching your head in bewilderment? I mean, why in the world would someone who had such high prospects for the future and such incredible capacity to do good in the world, give it all up and become a slave. Do you see how you can reason yourself out of the promises of God? How you can reason yourself right out from under faith? Abraham could have done the same thing, right? He could have said, God, you know, I don't understand. Your word is not clear. Okay, over, hello. You're breaking up. Leave a message at the sound of the tone. I'm not hearing you properly. It sounded like you said, kill my son, my only son, the son of promise. That can't be right. It didn't make any sense. You promised. Moses was in the same place. How did he reason himself through that? Well, his reasoning is explained in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. You remember when we looked at the word consider back in verse 19? It means he did the calculation. He thought about this. He weighed out what would be most valuable in the long run. He did the math. And he concluded that the result of identifying himself with the people of God, which is parallel to identifying himself with the reproach of Christ, which is what the people who were receiving the book of Hebrews had to face, 
He reasoned that identifying himself with the people of God had an infinitely greater payoff than the accumulated wealth of all of Egypt. He had found a treasure in the field. And he thought to himself, it's going to take me everything I got to buy the field, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And then, in case we have any inclination to balk at that interpretation or that line of thinking, the author adds these words at the end of verse 26. For this is why, this is why he reasoned this way, why he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to what? The reward. What reward? Not anything that he would get in this life. Not any reward on earth, that's for sure. Moses spent the remainder of his years in a life of wandering through deserts, first with a herd of sheep, and then with a throng of people who constantly bucked his leadership and rebelled against God. And in the end, he didn't even get to go in the promised land. I mean, that's what it was all about, right? That's why verse 13 says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To that, some will say, what a tragedy, but not Moses, not Moses. You remember the scene when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray and God arrived on the scene in a, in a cloud. God revealed the blazing glory of Christ before their eyes and God the Father spoke out of the cloud affirming his son, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Remember who else appeared? As if from heaven itself, Elijah and Moses, he found his reward. He lived for the reward. And he found his reward. This is truly a man who died in faith. But now he has received his full reward. And I tell you, beloved, there are people in this world whose lives can only be explained by the reality that they live for riches that cannot be seen. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He considered the honor and privilege of being identified with Christ's people more valuable than all of the money in the world. And that's the way it is with all great men and women of faith. The choices they make in this life don't make sense apart from the reality that they are living for something that other people cannot see. And we see this in the life of Paul, do we not? In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most be pitied. Which being translated means, that was stupid. He was just plain dumb. If there isn't anything after this life, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no eternal reward, then all this stuff that I did, all the sufferings, all the beatings, the stoning until left for dead, the eventual beheading, the ostracizing throughout his life and ministry, all of that was dumb. Why? Because the choices he made don't make any sense. If he was living for the pleasures of this life, like the Old Testament saints who lived before him, Paul lived for the fulfillment of God's eternal promises, promises that he could only fully realize after this life. And that's why he said things like this. Uh, Brent read this this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, just the end of what Brent read. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And don't we have many things that might cause us to lose heart in this life? I read the prayer requests. I come into this room every week and I wander here to where you're sitting. And I pray for those of you who have sent in requests. And I know that there's potential for real heartbreak on some of this. And Paul said, we don't lose heart. 
For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's how he kept from despairing. Romans 8.18, Paul says again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The example of Moses is compelling, but there's a greater one. There's a greater one. The author of Hebrews later on in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, says this, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We're not living for this place. We make the best of it, and we stay the course. The recipients of this letter had every reason, humanly speaking, to make bad choices. They had already made choices that were consistent with the eternal promises. They had done that in the past. You remember back in chapter 10, he said that they showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They let... Either the crowds or the police or somebody ripped through their homes and take whatever they wanted by force. And they rejoiced. How could they do that? Because as the apostles concluded, when they were beaten, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. But if that's not enough, we need to look no further than the example of Jesus himself in Hebrews 12, where the author exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus. You want an example to follow as you're waiting for the next hard decision? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of God. Now think about your life for a moment. Think about your life. And think about the final day when we will stand before the presence of the Lord. Revelation 11, and we don't have time to read it. Revelation 11 and several passages in Revelation reveal to us the day when we will stand before Him. And He will reward the prophets, and He will reward the saints. And eye is not seen, nor ear is heard, nor is it entered into the heart of man all that God has reserved for those who love him. Living by faith means living in such a way that the prospects of this, of this day, that day, the Revelation 11 day, it's living according to the prospects of that day which rules our lives. The fulfillment of the promise. You know, Kent Hughes, one of my favorite authors, suggests that there are two things that would create this kind of faith in us. The first one is 60 seconds in heaven. If God were to grant us 60 seconds in heaven, we, if we could just have 60 seconds of a glimpse of heaven, if God were to allow us 15 seconds to behold the face of Christ, and 15 seconds to survey the angelic host, 15 seconds to glimpse the heavenly architecture, and 15 seconds to behold a loved one who is now glorified. That's all it would take. But he writes, but God is not going to do that for any of us. I could pray until I'm blue in the face, and I wouldn't get one second in heaven until eternity. And so the first way doesn't work. The second thing that would produce such faith in our hearts is simply to do what Moses did. Believe God's promise.
pursue God's promise. Be a promise seeker. Beloved, I tell you, there are people in this world whose lives can only be explained by the reality that they live for riches that cannot be seen. I call them promise seekers. Are you one of them? Let's pray. Lord, you've made us so many wonderful and precious promises, not only for eternity, but for this life. As a church body, we've been memorizing some of them. We praise you that even now in this life, you do not You have promised that you would not reward us according to our sins. But that you would be compassionate like a father is with his imperfect and sinful children. You cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And you remember them no more. And even when we sin, you remember our frame. That we are but dust. And you love us. But beyond that, you have promised one day we will see you face to face and all the sufferings of this life, all of the discomfort, all of the disappointment, all of the otherwise soul-shattering events that occur in this life, we will look back on that day and wish that we had been more faithful pursuing your promises. Father, make us, men and women of faith, make us promise seekers for your great glory and for our own eternal joy. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, through whom all of these promises have been given. Amen. Amen.